Chapter Seven of The Old Ladies by Hugh Walpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven: Death of Hopes. On the third of February in the morning, Lucy Amorous' cousin died. She had made in January two attempts to see him, but had been no more successful than on her Christmas visit. She had been herself needing all the courage that she could muster. She had not been very well. She had caught a cold in this wintry weather, and then there was the house. What exactly was the matter with the house she could not be sure, but six months ago it had been tolerable. Now she disliked it so actively that soon she must leave it, even if needs must, for the highways and hedges. At the thought of the highways and hedges she smiled. She had an odd sense of humor, all her own, something detached and cynical and ironic, ironic about herself. She would chuckle sometimes without a moment's notice in the middle of her undressing, or lying awake at chilly morning hours, or reading the standard, and the chuckle meant that she was seeing herself from the outside as something very ludicrous, ludicrous in its own importance about itself, in its little assumptions of dignity and eagerness and desire. When she saw herself in that way, she lost all her anxieties and perturbations of spirit. So unimportant was she in the general scheme of things that it was absurd indeed to see how the little creature worried and fussed, fuss and worry, worry and fuss. Everyone at it, everyone's trying to get their money's worth, and the one thing that mattered, the love of God, scarcely entering their heads. On such detached occasions she felt a human intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. That he had a sense of humor she knew well. If he had not, he would never be able to endure the eternal conceit and self-absorption of human beings. It was because he could laugh a little, seeing with his tenderness and understanding what children these humans were, that he could be so patient. She would never be so patient, and sometimes she was exasperated so keenly with herself that she could shake herself. During this month of January she felt just this half-ironical, half-kindly exasperation about herself. She could not put the thought of this money out of her head, and she could not feel a proper patience with May Beringer, and she could not have the kindly feelings that she ought to have towards old Agatha Payne. Moreover, she had dreadful, dark suspicions that she was a good deal of a snob. She didn't want to spend the rest of her days with women like May Beringer and Agatha Payne. She liked good talk and laughter and fun. No one enjoyed a really silly time more than she did. It was too bad that she must always have her laugh to herself. Never mind, when the money came, she would go. She pulled herself up. There she was again, counting her chickens. She was ashamed of herself. She caught her cold on her second visit to her cousin's house. It was a biting, windy day, and once more the housekeeper talked to her in the doorway and refused to step aside. Horrible woman! Mrs. Amorous indulged in a nice, warm, consoling, comforting luxury of dislike on the way home. She could not abide the woman, and she was glad that she could not. She would like to give her a piece of her mind, and then she chuckled again, because she was always such a failure at giving people pieces of her mind. She could never remain indignant for more than two minutes together. It never seemed worth while. 
she saw the ludicrous side of bad temper so quickly her husband used to say that it was very irritating of her it was never worth while to lose one's temper with her she would never have heard of her cousin's death had it not been for her visit to the grocer's mrs conduit the kind wife of the grocer told her he had died that morning in his sleep and was to be buried on thursday service at st john's in the may lane cemetery the news threw her into a terrible agitation she did not now think of the money but only of the way that he had stroked her hair falling asleep poor cousin francis he had looked at her so kindly on that last visit he had meant always to be kind but it had been so wretched and gloomy for him in that large ugly house always ill always suffering she shed tears in her room sitting in front of the tiny fire thinking of him there was another thought waiting for her but she kept it back her own loneliness her last relation was gone she had no relations now and no friends in the whole world save only her boy the last of the family was gone there were others perhaps somewhere but she had long lost sight of them and they of her the world was a large place to be alone in but she prevented that thought from reaching her keeping it behind her nevertheless it was there with her in the room she could not drive it out she did not sleep at all that night lying there during the hours that crept one by one to her bedside nodded at her and stole off again she read her bible and her prayer book but she could not bring them close to her the house with its silent mutterings was all alive around her strange doors closed and opened steps were on the stair walls whispered her candle guttered flamed upwards died and she had not another her room was very cold and the dawn would never come mrs bloxham found her wide-eyed and shivering at eight o'clock nevertheless with the morning her spirit returned francis was happier now in paradise away from that unfriendly dwelling-place and his suffering over she liked to think of him in paradise his surprise at what he found there his wide-eyed astonishment at the kindliness and the fun the laughter and the flowers he would be young again and instead of the grasping and acidulated greenacre there would be st michael and all the angels he would be no longer naked and alone he would worry no more about his money he would have finer things to think about he would not be suspicious and imagine that people were making a fuss of him simply for what they could get out of him he would be learning too the beauties of service he would be doing things for others the angels would soon be setting him to jobs that would be new for him indeed he would not like them at first he would feel that he was wasting his time and then as happiness came flooding in he would see that that was the only way to be happy when he saw that what a change it would make in him he simply would not be the same man she amused herself with these thoughts and saw it all so truly that any unhappiness she might have had about his fate left her he was far better off than he had ever been the next thing was what should she do about the funeral go of course although no card had been sent her no word even of his death had yet come to her she did not mind that they were too busy to think of her 
But what should she wear? She had a black dress, but it was so shabby, so faded, that it would never do. Her grey silk was all that she had, and that would seem too gay at a funeral. But there was a black silk scarf given her many years ago by a friend, and her bonnet of dark purple, and her black gloves. She would like to send some flowers, but the thought that this might seem ostentatious and pushing restrained her. She bought on the Thursday morning a bunch of early snowdrops, and thought that she would have an opportunity of putting them on the grave. Thursday was a lovely day, one of those February days that come in Glebeshire, and seemed to promise an immediate bountiful spring. The sky was clear-washed to a blue that was almost white. Clouds, fragments of faintest lawn, floated so lightly that they seemed to be blown, as in a children's game, from place to place. The woods that fringed the hills were shadowed the most delicate rose, and behind the shadows were softly dark, like velvet. The air was clear and still, so that the shouts of children and the barking of dogs, the rattle of wheels, could be distinctly heard. She found the walk up to St. John's a climb. This was a dark, stuffy church with heavy green windows, stony-faced cherubs, and a shining cold floor. She slipped in at the back unnoticed. She was surprised at the number of people present. She had thought of him always as a lonely man with no friends, but the church was quite full. There was a subdued murmur of voices and much moving of heads to see who was who. At first she knew no one, and then she saw Mr. Nielsen, her banker, and then Mr. Agnew, the kind little solicitor, with his bald, shiny head and broad, resolute back. In spite of herself, at the sight of him, her heart beat. He, in all probability, knew the contents of Cousin Francis's will, and he seemed to her, for the moment, to be the arbiter of all the fates and destinies of the world. Then she saw Miss Greenacre, darkened with a thick black veil, come slowly up the aisle. The coffin was in front of the altar, covered with flowers. The organ began to play, and the choir filed in. The sun seemed to blow in gusts through the green windows, and to run in patterns up and down the floor. It was very cold, and smelt as though the church were always closed. She could not attend to the service. Her confidence about Cousin Francis's happiness was gone. It was so lonely for him. She could not drive from her consciousness the feeling that it was he who was there in that coffin. She knew, of course, that it was not so, it was only the worthless clay, but the chilliness and the green light and all the casual black heads of the indifferent people depressed her so that soon she was crying between the fingers of her worn black gloves. A stout man next to her pushed and heaved as though he were wishing for release, and the organ went on wailing like a peevish child. Outside, when they started to walk to the cemetery, it was better. Although they moved slowly, they were soon in the lanes above Orange Street, and here it was very beautiful. The trees were bare, but you could feel their happiness at the consciousness of the strong sap that was pouring through their veins. The sky was as clear as eggshell china, and once and again there was a break in the hedge showing fields as fresh as watered silk. How incongruous that black, slow, silent procession! The carriage crawled reluctantly. 
in subdued voices the mourners spoke lucy amorous walked nearly at the last no one had addressed a word to her that day when they turned into the cemetery they were on the hillside and all the valley of the pole lay below them on the side of the hill opposite to them was the grim stone house a speck in the distance that had been cousin francis's home it looked so unimportant now beside the gay shining beauty of the town that sprawled on the hillside and over all the cathedral sailed in the clear light away 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 so lightly set that it seemed that another tug of the wind would release it and send it flying to heaven they crowded about the open grave the clergyman thin and peaked his surplice blowing in the breeze said the last words the coffin was lowered words were indistinct and human beings unimportant mrs amherst could not see the grave she caught fragments of the white surplice and clutching in her glove the snowdrops felt that she had not courage to step forward and throw them down onto the coffin no one regarded her she was as though she had never existed they did not know that he had stroked her hair and said that she was better than all the others well it did not matter he knew and she knew he was aware now that she had tried to see him and had been prevented there was now an understanding between them as there had never been when he was alive miss greenacre was of no further importance she could not come between them any more she walked back very slowly as the afternoon light gathered in but she was not unhappy she was very glad that she had been able to go and she gave the snowdrops to a little street child who stared at her with wide-open eyes too deeply astonished to thank her four days later she received this letter from the little bald-headed solicitor dear mrs amherst i wonder whether you will be passing one morning and could look in and see me for a moment i have something that i should like to discuss with you if you have time to give me i beg to remain yours sincerely john h agnew time to give him the letter shook in her hand time to give him the crisis of all her life had come the breakfast things on the table were dim the rose-coloured furniture the shadowed misty air only through the haze looking up she saw distinctly agatha payne in the doorway staring at her it was so obvious that important news had come to her that she did not attempt to disguise it but faintly behind her agitation she felt an anger that had been piling up in her breast for days at the way that agatha payne had now of coming into her room uninvited and unheralded whether the woman made a pretense of knocking or no she could not tell but look up and there she would be in her old dirty purple gown leaning against the wall she had apparently now a great purpose of showing herself friendly but active friendliness did not come easily from her what was the old woman about this morning she was direct enough she said at once coming to the table and pointing with her thick shapeless finger you've had a letter about the money then as mrs amorous said nothing she went on in her thick guttural voice i know he died nearly a week ago you went to the funeral so you needn't try to hide it from me hide it from you lucy amorous said looking up i wasn't trying to do that why should i indeed her excitement was so great that she did not at the moment mind agatha payne knowing anything she pleased 
Nevertheless, she would not have her coming into the room like that without so much as a knock. Would you mind, dear, she said, smiling, but speaking with firmness, knocking before you come in? It is pleasanter, don't you think, for both of us? But Agatha Payne had not heard. She had one hand pressed to her bosom, and with the other she was still pointing. What does he say in the letter? Does he say that you've got the money? He says I'm to go and see him, Mrs. Amherst answered. It may not be about the money at all. Oh, of course it is. What else would he want to see you about? Aren't you in luck? Well, I never. Whatever will you do with it all? Then, after a little pause, she added, When are you going to see him? I shall go this morning, I think. I may as well. I should think you'd better. I couldn't wait a minute if it was me. She stared at Mrs. Amherst as though she would devour her. She slowly sucked her fingers one after another. Then she withdrew to the door. I shall like to know, she said, what he says to you. Oh, I dare say, answered Mrs. Amherst brightly, that it won't be anything at all. But in her heart she knew that, were that so, she would suffer great disappointment. Her knees trembled as she felt her way down the dark old stairs of the house. Her heart thumped as though it would hammer her body to pieces. All the scene was dark before her. Mr. Agnew, the solicitor, lived in Hampton Street, near the marketplace, and to the left of Orange Street. It was a dark, pokey little street, but it debouched on to a twist of the pole, which, in the unexpected way that it had, sauntered into the city and then hurried out to the hills and fields again. Mr. Agnew's number was nine, and his office was on the third floor. At the bottom of the stairs she rested. Did her heart not beat less wildly, she thought that she would never reach the top. It was amazing that ordinary life should push so tumultuously around her. A boy passed the door whistling. A man with a cart cried out that he had vegetables to sell. The cathedral bells began to ring. A donkey hee-hawed, a child cried, and the sun flickered in pools about the stairs. All this as though nothing tremendous were happening to her at all. She laughed at herself then, and the laugh helped her forward. How absurd of her to imagine that her affairs mattered to anybody. After all these years, even that simple lesson was not yet learnt. She climbed the stairs and knocked on the door that had Agnew and Pace solicitors upon its glass. "'Come in,' said someone. She went in, and a young boy wearing a bright blue tie, a large horsehair pin, and a very confident air, asked her what she wanted. "'Mr. Agnew wrote to me,' she said timidly, and asked me to come and see him. "'Would you mind giving me your name, ma'am?' said the bright young man. "'Mrs. Amherst is my name.' "'I'll tell Mr. Agnew. He's engaged at the moment. Would you take a seat, please?' Mrs. Amherst sat down, but it was terribly hard to wait to be so near and yet to be kept without information. The room was so cold and so hard, with a map of England on one shining wall and a photograph of Polchester Cathedral on the other, and the young man working so earnestly at the table, all so quiet that the clock on the mantelpiece seemed the only live thing there. At last the bell rang, and the young man said very politely, "'Will you go in now, ma'am, if you please?' For a horrible moment she was afraid lest her knees should refuse to support her. She did tremble for an instant when she stood, then bravely she moved forward. 
She was reassured when she saw the kindly, smiling face of Mr. Agnew. He surely could have nothing but good news for her when he smiled at her like that. He came forward to meet her, shook her by the hand, set out a chair for her. He was a short, stumpy man with a broad back. His broad back and round, shining, bald head were the two features that, on every occasion, freshly astonished Mrs. Amherst. "'Well, that is good of you,' he said in his warm, friendly voice, but his words were always a little measured, as though he had to pay for each one, and was determined not to be extravagant. "'I do hope that it has been no trouble for you to come in and see me.' "'No trouble, thank you,' said Mrs. Amherst, trembling in spite of herself. "'Really, the weather is very pleasant,' he went on, rubbing his hands cheerfully together. "'Very pleasant indeed.' "'Yes,' said Mrs. Amherst, smiling faintly. "'And one's always taken in afresh,' he went on. "'That's the curious thing. Always believe spring's arriving, although, of course, it can't be so early in the year.' and then back the frost comes and all the buds are nipped and the flowers ruined. Yes, it is strange, Mrs. Amherst admitted. What I say is, went on Mr. Agnew, smiling broadly and showing two splendid rows of white teeth, that the climate's changing. To my mind there can be no doubt of it, no doubt at all. Permanently, I mean. They say it's the icebergs, and I shouldn't wonder. Tricky things, icebergs. Ever been to America, Mrs. Amherst? No, never. Well, I remember a voyage I took over there to see about some clients' affairs. When was it? Oh, let me see, in 82, I think, or was it 83? Never mind. Whenever it was, we got into the thick of those beastly things. Pretty they were, green like glass, but dangerous. My word, the captain didn't have his clothes off for three days and nights. Lucky we were to come through as we did. "'You must have been alarmed,' said Mrs. Amherst. Mm, "'Yes, we were. Icebergs and fogs. Those are the things you have to look out for at sea. All the same, we had a good captain. That's the principal thing. Queer place, America.' "'Oh, well, well.' He stood there smiling, rubbing his hands together, and Mrs. Amherst sat in her chair, also smiling and rubbing her hands together. In spite of herself, she felt faint. She could not see the room clearly, and she was very cold. "'I do really hope it's been no trouble to you coming to see me.' "'Oh, none at all, Mr. Agnew.' "'Well, that's good. That's fine. Let me see. Uh, where were we? Oh, yes, quite so, quite so.' He stood over his table, fingering papers. He picked them up and put them down. "'Oh, yes.' He drew himself up and looked towards her. "'What I asked you to come and see me about, Mrs. Amorous, was just this.' Your cousin Francis Bulling's death was very sad, very sad indeed, but he's been ailing for a long time. You were not at the funeral, I think? Oh, I was there. Oh, you were, indeed. I call that wonderful of you, such a climb as it is up to that cemetery. A terrible business for catching a cold, a funeral especially in the winter time. I would hardly have expected you to be present. I always say that one funeral means a dozen. He looked up, smiling broadly. But I'm glad you're none the worse. I am indeed. She waited, her hands folded on her lap. Oh, where were we? Oh, yes, it was about his will that I asked you to drop in. The fact is that he's left you something expressly by name. That was very good of him, said Mrs. Amorous. 
Yes, he was a good-natured man, Francis Bulling, at heart. He didn't like to show his feelings. That's a British trait, to hide your feelings. Most of us are the same that way, and I must say I think it's a pity. Many of us are not given credit for the feelings we've got. Now the French are supposed to be all feeling, but I assure you that at heart I'd back an Englishman every time. Very superficial, the French. Yes, said Mrs. Amorous. Now, to come to the point, I'll read you what he says. To my cousin Lucy Amherst, I would wish to leave some personal possession of mine that she may choose, that she may keep it and remember me by it. There you are. That's exactly what the will says. He's done the same to several others, his housekeeper, Miss Greenacre, and one or two more. It shows that he had more feeling than appeared at first sight. Mrs. Amherst said nothing. The executors selected a few things, and to save you trouble, I have one or two here in the office. If none of them struck you as very inviting, then you might like to go up to the house and choose something there. But they seem to me very serviceable, very serviceable indeed. There's an especially fine ink pot, and a... Uh, oh, but you shall see for yourself. He rang his bell. The smart boy appeared in the hallway. Just bring in those things of Mr. Bullings, Charlie. They are in that farther cupboard. Careful now, carefully. We don't want anything broken. Charlie reappeared, his arms loaded. He placed the things very reverently on the table in front of Mr. Agnew. There was a large and very heavy inkstand, a blue leather writing case, an ivory paper knife with a silver handle, a small silver matchbox, and a glass paperweight stamped with red and blue flowers. Now, Mrs. Amherst, said Mr. Agnew cheerfully, here they are, and do tell us quite honestly if none of these strike your fancy. There are plenty of other things up at the house, but I thought we might save you the trouble of a journey. The point, after all, is to have something to remember him by, something you'll have on the table in front of you. I think, said Mrs. Amherst quietly, I should like the matchbox. Would you indeed, said Mr. Agnew heartily. Well, I must say that seems to me a very wise choice. I agree with you. It's small, takes up very little room, and it's altogether a handsome affair. Francis Bulling used it himself thousands of times, I'm no doubt at all. He rang the bell again. Charlie, just wrap this up in paper for Mrs. Amherst, will you? She'll take it along with her. There was silence while Charlie wrapped up the matchbox. Mrs. Amherst said nothing, but sat there without moving, her hands folded. Mr. Agnew was uncomfortable. He did not know why. He, who was never at a loss, had nothing to say. He had expected that the old lady would be pleased that her cousin should have remembered her. But she was always quiet, never showed what she was feeling. Nice old lady, one of the old kind that were getting rarer. Like the climate, people were changing, everyone leveling up. He couldn't say that he liked it. Much harder to get good clerks now than it used to be. Ah, there was Charlie with a parcel. That's right, that's right. Sure, you've got everything. Mind you come in and see me if there's anything I can do for you. Only too delighted. Good day, there's the door. Then down three flights. Do hope it hasn't tired you. After she was gone, he stood at his window, looking out upon the sun-dappled pall, the shining field, the houses with their red-brown flanks rejoicing in the unexpected warmth. She was old, hard on one to be as alone in the world as that, at her age. Nice old lady, too. He felt the bulging muscle of his arm, smiled, and went to his work.
End of chapter 7